The gospel reading is from Mark 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've spent uh, three weeks now in this short passage, uh, sort of the preamble to Mark in preparation for an extensive uh, study of Mark. And what we're trying to do is to kind of get our bearings to learn to listen in to Mark's gospel as the original hearers would have listened in. What would they have heard when they heard the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news? This that we sort of take for granted as meaning a certain thing that's generally private, generally spiritual in nature. How would have Mark's hearers read, read or heard this? And so we've been talking about terms like revolution and a community of resistance and a Messiah as a term that is deeply political and social, about the idea of rejecting an economy and a way of life that is predicated upon the virtue of always owning more and more. And so, as we get to the tail end of this, we read this phrase, we hear baptism and repentance, and we think, well, maybe now we're into more familiar territory. But what does Mark tell us here is that Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized, a baptism for the repentance, for forgiveness of sins. Well, then why does Jesus need to be baptized? What does He need to be what does he need to repent of if it is true as Christian theology has always held that Jesus is in fact the one sinless man? Why is he being baptized? Some historical context. 
what was going on in the period of time that Mark's hearers would have received this. After the assassination of Julius Caesar, the Roman Republic was in rather total disarray, and this struggle for power began between two people that you may have uh, recall from your time in high school that maybe you read Julius Caesar. One of them was Mark Antony. He was Caesar's lieutenant and seemed to be the heir apparent. Also, Gaius or Gaius Octavian, who is Caesar's grandnephew and adopted son, also has a claim. Well, in a brilliant move, Gaius Octavian sort of feigned deference to the imperial senate, which was kind of disempowered and a little bit uh, weakened or very weakened in that day. And they saw an opportunity with Gaius Octavian because he was feigning deference to them. They thought, well, we'll throw our support behind him, and then we can reemerge as a powerful entity in the Roman Republic. Well, they gave Octavian their backing, and they made Mark Antony an enemy of the state, and Antony flees. And Octavian pursues him and finally defeats him in the Battle of Actium in B.C. 31, thereabouts. This was right around the time that Jesus was beginning His public ministry. This good news of Octavian's victory, the gospel of Octavian's victory, traveled the empire. And Octavian was proclaimed as a savior, Latin sotir, for those of you who are familiar with kind of theological terms, soteriology, how is one saved and rescued? Well, according to Roman mythology, it was through Gaius Octavian bringing peace and security to the Roman Empire. That was the gospel that was to be believed. And he was named by the Senate, therefore, in this victory, Augustus, the Magnificent One. And he continued the expansion of the Roman Empire. And he reigned as, get this, the king of kings, because he was king over all of these vassal states and client states and these conquered countries. And he was also king of kings over the king in Israel, who was happy to operate in sort of a similar way that the Roman Empire did, that is stratifying the society between the rulers and the ruled. Well, all of these kings, Israel included, pledged their total allegiance to Octavian. If they didn't, then the Roman army would march in and eviscerate them. And many people had to, when they were conquered and many individuals, had to proclaim their allegiance to Augustus in an oath that was called what? Get this, a sacramentum in Latin. And any challenge to his rule was considered an act of sedition, punishable by death. So that's the setup, and along comes Mark, and he can tell the story however he wants to tell it. What is he going to highlight? What does he want to make memorable as he is inviting people to be baptized, as he is 
narrating the life and the ministry and the story of Jesus, what is he going to focus upon? He writes and presents a call to a different sacramentum, a different king, an invitation to disclaim allegiance to Rome, specifically to Caesar, and to make a very public vow in a river, a new sacramentum, a vow to, at this point when Mark is writing, a murdered rabbi who is introduced on the world stage by a hick preacher who wears camel's hair and eats bugs. And people did it. People read this and said, sign me up. I want to be an enemy of the state, and I want to follow a murdered rabbi. They, in fact, flowed out of Jerusalem, where the state-sanctioned religion was, and they took an oath to an alternative kingdom, which is a very loaded, very political term. The very first passage, baptism, Messiah, kingdom, he is front-loading the cost of what it means to be baptized, what it means to follow this new rabbi, knowing full well that this baptism, this sacramentum into this new movement was a potentially lethal decision, people did it anyway. Imagine, parents, bringing your child to baptism if you knew that doing so marked them out as an enemy to the state and an enemy to the status quo you'd probably wait even longer than most of us do to have our children baptized. We have few rituals today that kind of are analogs to what baptism would have meant to them. We don't see it in our present practice of baptism. But imagine those of you that lived through the 60s. Do you remember when people protesting the Vietnam War would get their draft cards and they would get them in the mail? And what would they do? Instead of reporting for duty, they would gather with a number of other people and they would burn them. They would burn their draft cards. And this wasn't to get them out of the draft. This actually put a target on their back. The United States had instituted this draft to fill its military needs for a war that was very unpopular and didn't have the same kind of good and evil binaries that, say, World War II had. People did, for the most part, did not want to go. They wanted to end the Vietnam War, at least after a time. And these people got these draft cards in the mail, and they burned them publicly, saying that we will not be a part of, or we will resist being a part of, of this tragic and bloody conflict at sort of the tail, ends, tail end of Western colonialism. Burning their draft card, even if you think that it's idealistic or wrong-headed or misguided, it was certainly a courageous sort of sacramentum. They were pledging allegiance to a different order that made them, if not enemies of the state, they were outlaws and subject to arrest. Baptism was, of course, a symbolic action just as it is today, but it was very 
consequential. And in Mark 10, we'll see that Jesus connects baptism, what most of us think of as sort of symbolic act, He connects it to what? He connects it to His execution. The reason that He will go to the de- death be- is because He was baptized into a whole new order of resistance against the Roman imperial empire and the religious system of Israel that colluded with it. And His disciples come in that moment, in the moment that He's talking about His death, and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, okay, what what do you want? Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. And He tells them that you're not ready to be baptized with that kind of baptism, with my kind of baptism, because it is a baptism that will lead to death. You see, the disciples were still playing this game of the Romans and the corrupt religious establishment, a game of power, a game of domination, a game of who can be first, who can have the most rights, who can oppress others, who can live above others. Whereas Jesus had been baptized into an alternative world order that was so threatening to the powers of the world that it would lead to His execution. What does John say about this person, about Jesus? After me comes the one more powerful than I. How powerful? How much different is Jesus than John the Baptist? He says, the straps of his sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I mean, that is a dirty business, bending down to untie someone's sandals when you're walking around places that have manure all over the roads. It is the posture of an indentured servant, of a slave. That's how he's thinking about Jesus. This person, Jesus, that we know from Mark's narrative also, who is the Son of God, the rightful King, the Messiah, this immensely powerful person who's going to come and remake the world, the Son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus at His baptism sort of wanders out from the crowds, just like any other schmo who might be there to get baptized by John that day. He's coming from Nazareth in Galilee, basically shorthand for Nowheresville. And he's being baptized by this hick preacher in flyover country, not in Jerusalem, where the approved religious infrastructure existed, but out in the boonies in a river that is barely a creek many parts of the year. And what do we see here? What we see is In the moment that Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit is hovering over Him, we see divine favor falling not upon the wealthy religious class in Jerusalem, not upon the powerful political class in Rome, but we see divine favor falling down upon this nobody and His poor blue-collar day laborer followers in the middle of nowhere. That's what Jesus' baptism is communicating, that things are changing, 
that there is a new world at stake and present. And to be a part of that new world, you are baptized into it. It is a a sacramentum, an oath into a new way of life. Mark tells us in words that he borrows from Genesis that this is not just a new spiritual technique or new spiritual regime. It is not just the beginning of a church, but it is a new creation. And in the first creation, the Spirit of God hovers over the deep. It hovers over chaos. And it's this image of extraordinary power. And it is set above the earth, rightfully so. Ultimate power, though benevolent. But here in the baptism of Jesus, this same power does not hover over the masses, but it comes from out from among them. This same power goes into water. The Spirit hovered over the water. Now the Spirit in Jesus goes into the water that everyone else is being baptized in. And He's anointed by this weird, bug-eating prophet from the wilderness. A mortal man baptizes Jesus in the river. Friends, this is not how power is supposed to work. Certainly not divine power. Certainly not ultimate power. In everyone's context that was reading this, power rules. Power asserts. Power subordinates. It does not submit itself to the poor and the marginal. Alan Street, who's an expert on ancient Roman society, says, in the empire, only two classes of people existed, the ruling elites and the ruled, dominators and the dominated. The latter had no say in governmental decisions. A pyramid-like social structure with the emperor and his cronies at the top and the lowliest marginalized at the bottom guaranteed that all wealth worked its way upward. Sound familiar? The rest lived at a subsistence level. Everyone knew their place in the societal pecking order. The majority kept their heads down in public, submitted to authority, worked from dawn till dusk, paid taxes, and went about their business. They rarely challenged the official Roman narrative. That was just the way of the world, and this is how power works. And if you were born into not only that social-political world that Rome oversaw, but you were also born into a a similarly structured religious world that cooperated with Caesar's Rome, that existed in Jerusalem to keep money flowing up to support the religious infrastructure and also Rome's imperial objectives, that was your reality if you were born into a religious family in Israel. But Jesus' ministry is cast in terms of a kingdom. It is not merely a new religious infrastructure. It's not merely a new religious insight. insight. He's not being baptized to be cleansed of personal sin, but He's being reborn symbolically into an entirely new creation. It's a sacramentum, an oath 
that Jesus is saying, I am no longer obligated to the way that the world works. And would you join me in this new world where power works very differently? In this new world, God does not extract tribute. He does not extract religious payment from the poor, but He grants His divine favor upon them. And in this scenario, divine judgment, it doesn't fall on the religiously fallen and the impure, but divine judgment falls upon the religious and political elite that oppress and enslave and divide, Jew between Gentile, us and them, clean and unclean. The kingdom, you see, is a different concept. It's not a matter of mere belief that I believe Jesus is who He says He is. And it doesn't exist, you see, just as we're gathered on a Sunday morning. And it doesn't exist mostly in your private devotionals or my private prayer life. But Jesus has come, as we'll see throughout Mark, to turn the world upside down. And I guess what we need to ask ourselves and think about How has your baptism turned your world upside down? Is your baptism, your oath to this new world, this new life, this new Messiah, is it dangerous to you in any way? And I realize our context is so different that very few of us, maybe if we're visiting here this morning, can understand how that oath might put you in literal danger. But has your baptism even endangered your privately oriented spending habits? Has it endangered the way that you want to spend your money and the things that you want to gather unto yourself? Has your oath, your baptism, this sacramentum, has it caused you to give your time or risk your reputation for the powerless and the left out instead of spending most of your time building your own kingdom? Has it endangered your career of merely achievement, of personal advancement? Has it changed the way that you think about your career, that it's now an instrument by which the values of Jesus' kingdom are brought to bear upon all of the broken and the sad places of our world? You see, that's what it means that it is a kingdom that it is not just your personal relationship with Jesus, but it is meant to be those that are gathered here spill out and they bring Jesus' kingdom values to bear upon the needs of a broken and fallen world. And oh, by the way, that includes our own needs of our broken and our fallen and sinful lives. But the promise goes along with the challenge. The challenge is that we are taking an oath to a completely new world that puts us at odds with the way that power is used and structured. But there's also a promise, and we'll end here, because we see God's grace falls on the margins. It falls on marginal people, and therefore it falls on your marginal places. All the places that you look at in your own life and think, I am broken, I am in disrepair, I am beyond fixing. 
That's where God's grace falls. That's where God's grace pools. If we are to believe this story, it falls on the fallen, those that know that they're fallen. It falls on those fallen down places in your life to bring His kingdom to bear, to begin reconstructing you as a person who lives in this new world. And that love that hovered over the face of the deep in creation, the most ancient love that the world has ever known, it hovers now on Jesus in His baptism and all who are gathered unto Him. Irrespective of your spiritual status, your spiritual achievement, your birth, your ethnicity, because grace relativizes all of those things. Because of grace, because of the good news, Jesus was baptized to bring in a new world, and He was baptized to bring you into it. And so, let that be your hope, your trust, the thing that moves you into our broken world this week. Let's pray. Father, we pray that all of us this morning who have been baptized, whether we remember it because we chose to do it or whether we were brought at a time before we were conscious of what is going on, the symbolism, the meaning of baptism, the grace inherent in baptism is such that it moves us into a new world. And Father, help us to recognize that new world. Help us to embrace it, even when it costs us, even when it's dangerous. Help us not to come to gathered situations like this just merely to receive and to be encouraged in our personal journeys, but let us be bound up in this new story of the world, and let us give up power for those who are marginalized, those who are distanced from you and distanced from the basic necessities of life. And I pray as we come to this table that that reality would be sunk deeper into who we are, that we would celebrate our bondedness to one another, our bondedness to you, and that we would see this meal as a sacramentum, an oath, a birth into a new world. And we pray that you would make that so as we come and we eat this meal and drink this wine together. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.